Okay, good morning. Go ahead and turn over your notebook. This is the last time that I get to look at the Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines with you this year. Um, in two weeks, Chris Evans will be back to teach us from 1 Thessalonians, and four weeks from today will be our last Wellspring, and we will be combined with Build for the teaching time. And that week, we all actually get started 15 minutes early, so go ahead and mark your calendars <coughs> so that you are ready to be here and start teaching at 6.45 that week. Uh, we'll either be here in Barnes Hall or we'll be down in the music room, but hopefully we'll know that to tell you next time. But there you have it on the back of your notebook. Our Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we pursue that purpose through three disciplines, heart, home, and ministry. Discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And this is why our assignment in Wellspring is primarily our daily Bible reading with a plan to take us through all of God's word in a year. That's our goal. And we've said all along that the goal is to persevere in that. And if we find we need to slow down and take more time to finish, that's okay. But the idea is that we're aiming to work our way through all of God's word and to meet with him in the word every day. And in almost every lesson this year, we've seen how badly our hearts need to meet with God in his word. Our heart is the most excellent deceiver and it's best at deceiving itself. And it's only the word of God that has the power to expose that deception. And so our hearts desperately need to be saturated with the whole counsel of God. We need to be reminded over and over of what all of God's word says, particularly about our heart. And some books of the Bible <clears throat> are more difficult to understand, for sure. A lot can be gained by doing a little background study before you jump into an unfamiliar book, maybe figuring out where it fits in a timeline or on a map or what else the Bible has to say about the people in that book. But even if you read it and you just look at what is true about God and about man and about sin and about the heart, you are going to get a lot. And we're going to miss a lot if we aren't feeding our hearts by meeting with God in his word every day. We just are. There is no guilt trip in that at all. But it's just something that we all need to be reminded of, especially right now when for many of us life is super busy. My husband calls it the gauntlet, this end of year where there's so many extra activities on top of our already busy schedules. The reality is that there is still nothing more important, more valuable, more satisfying, or more necessary than meeting with God in his word. And so that is why discipline one is so necessary to discipline two. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. You might find yourself in a season where you feel unappreciated for your ministry to your household. Or you might realize that you aren't necessarily appreciating the ways in, that others in your household are ministering to you. Well, what is the solution either way? What will cultivate a heart of joyful service and a heart of humble gratitude towards those in our household? It's what Discipline 2 says. It's ministering with our heart for God and the gospel. We bring our hearts before God's word where we meet with God. 
and our hearts and minds are realigned with the truth that we are his. We are partakers of his lavish grace through the gospel. We were lost, and now we are found, cleansed, free from sin's tyranny. And when we are feeding our hearts with the gospel, our ministry in our households will bear the aroma of Christ. When our minds are being renewed with God's word, we so treasure the gospel that we are eager to be those who care for others with that same gospel hope that we love. God's word reminds us that we are the chief of sinners and the least of all saints. And it is God's grace and God's power that give us this privilege to proclaim and to live out the unfathomable riches of Christ. But those realities fade quickly from our minds. And so if we are to be those who lavish God's grace in the gospel on those with whom we live, we indeed must renew our hearts daily with the riches of his word. And the same is true for discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Once again, we see that a faithfulness in shepherding our hearts that is lived out in our homes gives us the foundation and the preparation we need to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Now go ahead and pull out the packet you received. It says Discipline 1, the heart, going deeper in the word. Now today's lesson is about how to study the Bible. So why would we want to study the Bible? Well, think about the Grand Canyon for a minute. If you go to the Grand Canyon, you can experience it by helicopter, by burrow rides, hiking, raft trips, or you can study the geology of the layers, the plant life, the animals, the climate. You could take a magnifying glass and study it inch by inch. And the reason why people want to go and interact with the Grand Canyon in so many different ways is that there's no way to exhaust its magnificence. The more you know about it, the more you appreciate it. And the more different ways you interact with it, the more you understand it. Well, our reading plan is a lot like the view that you get from the air. But what you see from the air is going to get make more sense the more time you spend walking around on the ground. And so when we look at God's word, we should want it all. We should want the big picture and we should want every detail and we should want everything in between. And we should want to know how everything fits together and just be hungry to continue to know more of God through his word because we will never exhaust the riches that we have there. In 2010, the theme of Grace Bible Church's women's retreat was mining the riches of God's word. Smedley Yates spent the whole weekend introducing us to how to study God's word, and it was a wonderful weekend. It was really encouraging, and it was overwhelming. Part of what is difficult about teaching this is that there are very important principles that we need to understand. But at the same time, learning to study the word is something we will need to keep on growing. And as long as we're alive, we're never going to have it all mastered. Part of learning comes from doing it. And we're not going to do it perfectly. But we can still benefit as we continue to grow in our understanding of how to handle God's word correctly. Now, we will not cover this packet in detail. 
you have a link there where you could listen to the audio from the retreat online. It's really good, and maybe this summer that's something you would enjoy going back and listening to. Smedley does a wonderful job explaining what's in this packet, but I just want to overview the packet. I want to talk about the presuppositions we bring to the Bible briefly and the principles that guide good Bible study. Now, I am not an expert at what is in this packet, but I love God by his grace because he loved me first, and I love his word, and I love to study God's word. It is so sweet. And so we're going to spend most of our time together studying God's word. And so I want you to go ahead and get out your homework assignment because you are going to study God's word for yourself sometime in the next two weeks. Now, maybe you've noticed in the homework this year, but more of the questions are built around helping you see for yourself what God's word says than in years past. We've had questions that require you to observe and to look for patterns and ask questions of the passage. We've asked questions about your reading plan, which require you to read with a purpose, to notice things about what you're reading. So you've been learning to study the word all year on a very basic level, but this week we're pulling out all the stops. Question one and two should look pretty familiar, but go ahead and turn to question three. All right, let me get there. Question three, you see it there, it's, it's in bold, and it says, what would you say if a really good friend said, can we get together in the next couple weeks? Or what if somebody said to you, hey, I've got a certificate that has to be used in the next two weeks. You can go to any spa you want and get any services you want, and you don't even have to tip. We'd probably try to find time for it, wouldn't we? So your assignment this week is to spend an additional hour with the Lord, other than your normal daily time in the Word and prayer. And you're going to spend that time continuing the study of Jude that we are going to begin this morning. Now you might ask, where can I find an additional hour to feast on the word and meet with my God in the next two weeks? Because we've already said this is the gauntlet for a lot of us, right? But here are some ideas. You could postpone one social engagement. You could replace one hour of entertainment, time on the computer or shopping. You could use one mealtime, unless you have others depending on you for that. You could use next Saturday at 7 when we don't have Wellspring. You could put the kids to bed an hour early. You could let them read their Bibles if they're not sleepy. You could replace one hour of exercise or postpone an appointment at the salon for your hair or your nails. Or you could give up an hour of sleep. Or you could take one hour of vacation time at work, perhaps. And if you look at that list and your life is so full that you couldn't do any of those, then... I just want to let you know, I just want to give you a hug. I'm sorry, your life is that full. And sometimes, in rare instances, they are that full. And that's okay. Do what you can to meet with the Lord. But most of us probably can find an hour in one of those ways or in some other way. So get out your calendar, pick a time, write down your appointment to feast on the Word and plan a place, put an alarm on your phone, whatever it takes so that it really happens. And then go take it as an opportunity to enjoy being with God, being with Him and His Word. And you have that assignment, and it's a gift. Because I want you to find out how awesome it is to get into God's Word and to start to make sense of what it says for yourself. 
Many commentaries and books and teachers are very good. We have a lot of really good resources. Not all are good, but here at Greece Bible Church, we have a lot of helpful resources. But remember in Acts 17, the Bereans were commended for being more noble-minded because they actually searched the scriptures to see if Paul's teaching was true. So commentaries and books and study notes in our Bibles are most helpful after careful observation and interpretation of the word on our own. Now, I also want you to think about this. When we listen to a sermon or read a book and it tells us something about God's word, it's easier to justify not responding to that teaching and not obeying that scripture because maybe that teacher is wrong. They might be. But it is not nearly so easy to justify ignoring what we see for ourselves to be the clear teaching of scripture as we study it carefully. And then just one other perspective I I want to share that I think might be helpful. When my mom and dad met, my mom had graduated from college with a degree in home economics, and that meant that she learned all about how to take care of a home, how to be a homemaker. And so she's really good at sewing, and she's an amazing cook. And then my dad over here is the chemistry major, and his perspective was anyone who can read can cook. Well, he wasn't wrong. However, when I was growing up, and if mom was going to be away, us kids liked it a lot better when mom left food for us. It's not that dad didn't make sure we had something to eat. It just wasn't quite as good as what mom would leave. And after 52 years of marriage and my mom being in a place where she can't cook as much as she used to, my dad can actually do okay in the kitchen. He makes great vegetable beef soup. But the point there is that, you know, most of us won't go to seminary and most of us probably won't ever know Greek. And many of us may be a little intimidated by diagramming a sentence. But if you can read, you can study the word. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get. And the more you sit under teachers who know how to do it better than you do, the more you're going to learn. And so don't let what you don't know keep you from learning all you can from studying God's word on your own. Okay, let's turn in your packet to the page that says presuppositions. Let me get there. Okay, so when we come to God's word, we come with some necessary pre-understandings. The first one is that this is God's word. It's breathed out by him. The second is that we need God's word. What we see in The natural world and creation will not show us our sin and our need for a savior or God's provision for our salvation. Number three is that God's word is without error. Number four is that God's word is understandable. It's really important to remember that the Bible is revelation. That means that it's revealing God to us. It's the revealing of God's mind to us. It's not the concealing The Bible was meant to be understood. God spoke so that we would hear and obey. Number five, God's word bears authority. That means to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself. And then number six, human language is able to convey meaning. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And it's closely closely related to number seven. And that is that God is able to convey his meaning through human language. In fact, he confines himself to human language. Um, as his means by which he communicates himself to us. 
um, we believe, uh, number eight then, that spiritual life is required for spiritual understanding. Then the next thing in your packet, you have some definitions that can be helpful. You have some explanation of some wrong or abnormal methods of interpreting the Bible. Um, and then you get to the section that says normal interpretation of the Bible. And that's what we want to talk about here. This is going to kind of summarize what a lot of this packet is about. But normal use of language is actually something that we just take for granted. When we communicate, we have a particular meaning in mind, something that we want to communicate to a particular audience for a particular purpose. We have a topic in mind, and we choose a form of communication that lends itself well to our purpose in communicating. Now, we might be misunderstood, but that doesn't change what we meant, what we intended to communicate. Now, we all know that we don't like to be misunderstood, and we don't like to have our words twisted to say what someone else would prefer them to mean. If I send my kids to the store with my grocery list that says five pounds of potatoes, I don't want them to come home with five pounds of potato chips. That's not what I meant when I wrote my list, and there has not been any meaningful communication between us if they just take it to mean whatever they want it to mean. Now, that seems pretty obvious when we think about how we communicate on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just inherent in how we read everything. A billboard, a coupon, a newspaper, a novel. We understand that the author had one particular meaning in mind for a particular audience and that the only way to benefit from the communication is to do our best to understand the meaning that was intended. But the strange thing is that people can quickly abandon this when it comes to the Bible. It happens all the time. There's an actual school of thought that teaches that the Bible really means whatever I think it means. They believe that what it means to me is the real meaning. I did this for years, for the longest time. That's what I thought Bible study was. But if we think about it, it just makes no sense. If my kids bring home <clears throat> those potato chips, when I wrote potatoes on the list, that doesn't change what I meant when I wrote it. They were wrong. It doesn't mean potato chips just because that's what it meant to them. And so what, it, what does it mean to me is not the right question to ask when we come to God's word. So we need to be careful with that word meaning. Sometimes we just use it carelessly. We might say what it means to me when what we mean is what I understand the author was intending to communicate or how it applies to me. And those are both legitimate uh, ways to look at scripture. And we want to be gracious with each other when we handle the word incorrectly. But let's watch how we use that word meaning. And more important, let's be careful about how we're thinking about the meaning of scripture. It certainly doesn't work when we communicate with each other to take things to mean whatever we want them to mean rather than what the speaker intended. It's disrespectful and it's unproductive. And the same is true when it comes to God's word. God is the author of scripture and he gave his words through human authors who were writing to real people and they had something in particular that they wanted to communicate. And if we just take it to mean whatever it means to us, we are taking the authority of God's word away from God and giving it to ourselves. The same thing is happening if we allegorize or spiritualize the meaning of a passage in such a way that we would have to look outside of the text in order to find the meaning of it. 
For example, if we say that the Song of Solomon is really about Christ and the church, the problem is that that can't be found in the text. There's no way that the original audience would have had any way to understand it to mean that. And the text only means what it meant by the author to its original recipients. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study to understand the actual meaning and make application to our own lives, but application comes after careful and correct interpretation, which is based on careful observation. There's only one right interpretation. The text only means one thing, and it means what it meant when it was written. Okay, so go ahead and look back at your packet then. So if we believe in the normal use of language and we want to stick to a normal interpretation of the Bible, that is going to lead us to several commitments. And the first is a commitment to the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics. And I have to say that slowly, or I can't say it at all. And I want to just tell you, don't zone out, don't pull away if that's an intimidating term for you. More or less, it just means what we just got done describing about how language is normally used. When we say normal use of language or literal use of language, you see a quote there. Um, this, is, this is what we're talking about. Normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it's evident that the author was using a figure of speech. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it is a good policy to begin with the literal. What is a door? What purpose does a door serve? Having asked that, then we ask what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. And I think it's interesting he even used a metaphor to explain what he means by figures of speech there with that word gateway. But that's just how embedded it is in our language. That is the normal way we use language. Um, and then you see that we're committed to the rules of grammar. And again, don't be put off by that. For some of us, grammar the word grammar strikes fear in our hearts. Um, but you know grammar. You might not know the, the language of grammar. You might not know what pronouns are and verbs are. But you use grammar. You're using it right now while you're listening to me. As I communicate, you understand what I mean because you understand how words work together to form thoughts and sentences. You understand when I say my husband put his shoes away, you know whose shoes my husband put away. You know that they were his shoes, they were my husband's shoes because you understand intuitively how to understand the meaning of a pronoun like his. You know when you hear a sentence if it happened in the past, if it's happening now, or if it's going to happen in the future. That's all grammar. And when we say we're committed um, to follow the rules of grammar, it just means that we're not going to try to assign a meaning to a text that's not consistent with the way that the of the grammar that's not that's inconsistent with the grammar of the sentence. 
Um, and then finally, that it means that we're committed to understanding things in the, their historical setting. We want to understand what the author was saying to those people and how they would have understood it, given where they were historically, culturally, politically, socially, all of that. Okay, so again, our, our commitment to normal use of language is also going to give us a commitment to auth the author's intent. Um, we don't like it when people disregard the, our intentions with our words, and so how much more ought we pay attention to God's intention with his word? And this is going to guide our study. If we want to, if we are committed to understanding the author's intent, then we're going to want to take a look at a book and understand all we can about the author and what he says about his intention for writing. We're also going to be committed to understanding the original audience. Um, we want to understand how the original audience would have understood the passage and how they would have been expected to hear and apply the passage. So when we go to study, we're going to pay attention to what it has to say about the recipients, what it says to the recipients, how it describes the recipients. That's going to help us put ourselves in their shoes and understand it the way they would have understood it. We have a commitment to the understanding of normal people as well. That's the next commitment. That means that we understand God's word was written to be understood. It was written to be, God, uh, God wrote to be understood, to be worshipped, and to be obeyed. It was not written just for uh, scholars to understand. Um, we are committed to understanding that each text has a single meaning, and we are committed to understanding the word in its context. Every word needs to be looked at in the context of its sentence, which is in the context of its paragraph and of its chapter and its book and its testament and in the context of all of God's word. So those are our principles. And so then the rest of what we're going to talk about is how we put those into practice. And the first thing we have to do to put those into practice is we have to observe the text. So you see there in your notes, it says the key to interpreting the Bible is observation. Observation is the key to interpretation. This cannot be emphasized enough. The task of the Bible interpreter is primarily to discover what the Bible actually says. There's another quote there that says one of the greatest weaknesses in the Bible study of many Christians is that they want understanding before getting acquainted with the passage. They want to know what God means before they know what he has said. So they read a passage through once, probably in a hurry, and then try to figure out what it means. First, become thoroughly familiar with what the passage says. Um, and then you see a homework assignment that was part of the retreat. And then you see these rules for interpreting the Bible. These rules are great to read before you uh, do the study that's in your homework. And the rest of this packet packet gives instructions for the steps of careful Bible study. And so you see there that the first step is to pray. And this is essential. You can see what it says there. This is God's word. We've come to God's word primarily to meet with him. We are dependent creatures in need of the Holy Spirit's illumination. We are regularly beset by sin, particularly the sins of pride and independence. We are prone to come to God's word for reasons other than communion with God. So pray. Pray to meet with God, to hear from God. Pray to be affected and changed by God through his word. 
Pray for understanding of his word. Pray for diligence to persevere in your study of God's word. Pray for appropriate application of his word to your own heart. Pray through every step of your study. So then you see the second step is to read, to read your passage. And this is what we're going to focus on today. And it's going to be um, talking about some tools we have for observation. And then the rest of this packet um, expand on more tools we have for correctly interpreting the Word of God. And these are tools that flow out of our commitments to understand language normally. It is a really good resource. And you also have a resource that's a single sheet, that's a reference sheet. Now, this single sheet is the kind of resource I want to have next to me when I sit down to study because it's going to remind me of some of the things I want to be looking for as I read and as I observe and as I ask questions of the text. Um, but some of the things on that sheet might need further explanation, and that's what you have in your packet. Now, tools take practice to learn how to use, but they get easier the more you practice. And sometimes we might grab a tool that's not all that helpful, and that's okay because that's how we learn. So in the rest of this packet, you see instructions and protections um, against misusing some of the other tools and steps that you'll want to do after you have read and observed the text over and over, carefully reading every word, being purposeful, asking what questions the text answers. And some of these tools are tools we'll actually begin to explore just with careful reading. And these instructions tell you how to go further with it. So you'll find instruction in here for understanding more about grammar, word studies, context, genre, author and audience, historical context, cross-references, and commentaries. Um, just really helpful instruction resource. Um, read it, listen to the audio that goes along with it, and you'll have a lot of really helpful instruction there. So let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll study Jude together. Okay. Well, you know that our first step in studying the Word is prayer. And I know we started our morning with prayer, but I need to pray again. I want to pray again. So if you'll pray with me. Um, Heavenly Father, um, again, we just come before you. Lord, I'm thankful that when we come before you, we come before a throne of grace. Lord, thank you that your grace, Lord, by its very definition, is not something that's dependent upon any qualification that we would have. Lord, you have demonstrated yourself to be a God who loves to pour out your grace on the unworthy, on the undeserving, on the unappreciative. So, Father, we come based on who you are, based on what you've demonstrated yourself to be in your word, and we ask for the grace that we need to handle your word well, Lord, to read it, to read it carefully, to read it with understanding, to understand the words that you've given us here. Father, I'm thankful for this time. I'm thankful that we have your word, and I pray that um, you would be the one who's leading and guiding this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
So um, we, we were going through the implications of our commitment to understanding language normally. We pointed out that two of the implications of that is that we're committed to understanding the author and his intent, and we're committed to understanding something about the recipients. We want to do everything we can to get ourselves into the shoes of the recipients. Um, now, if you were sitting down at home for yourself, and this is the first time you're studying Jude, the first thing you'd want to do is pray, and then you would just want to read through the book a few times. And you'd want to read, you'd want to try to get the general flow of thought, you'd want to focus on what's obvious, what's he talking about, a couple of things that are obvious typically in anything, but especially when you're reading the word, is the people and the events. So you'd be reading it. Okay, who are the who are the players in this? You know what what problem is he addressing? Why is he writing this? And you would just read it a few times, just looking for that big picture. And then you would do what we're going to do now together. For the sake of time, we're going to jump right in. And again, we've we've mentioned a few times this year that we want to be aware of the difference between principles and methods. What we're going to do right now, it's a method. I think it's a helpful method. It might not be your thing. That's fine. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't study the word, right? We've already covered some principles that are going to help us know how to interact well with God and his word. What we're doing right now with our marking and making lists, it's a method, and it's a helpful method, but it's not the only way to study. Just like um, what you will hear on the audio from Smedley, it's not the only way to use the tools. We've got lots of tools, and there are many ways to use them to help us dig into God's word. So hopefully you've got two different colors of pencils. What we're going to do is we're going to read through, and you need to pick one color that you're going to use to mark everything we learn about the author, and pick another color that you're going to use to mark everything we learn about the recipients. Now again, if we had more time, or if you were doing this on your own, you probably would want to read it through one time, especially because Jude is only... What, 25 verses? It's pretty short. Um, And you would read it through, after you familiarized yourself with it, you would read it through once and just mark everything you learn about the author. And then you would do another pass-through and mark everything you learn about the recipients. Um, We're going to mark both this time as we go through, again, because it's a short passage and and for the sake of time. Um, and also, just this is just a note, as, as you think about studying other things, what we're doing today is just the tip of the iceberg. I, More than anything, I want to make you eager to do more of this yourself. But if you dive in and decide you want to study a book that's more history, um, your approach to that might be a little different than what we're doing. And, and what's in that packet that we started with that's from the retreat, that's going to give you some guidelines on how to get started. But it's not terribly different different in the sense that you want to just read it. Find out what's obvious. Who's it talking about? What's happening? Um, and then go from there. Um, okay. So everybody has their author color and the recipient color, right? Okay. Now when you color, again... It's up to you. You could just underline it. You can color it in. You can do a bubble. You can do a circle. But something that's pretty quick, okay? Because we're not going to sit here while you draw, all right? <laughs> you know, if that makes you learn it better on your own, you can do that. Okay. You can see I, did, I just did a highlighter, okay? So we're going to just read it a verse at a time or a line at a time. First line, Jude, 
a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, have we learned anything about the author in that line? Yes. What have we learned about the author? Okay, so you're going to want to mark bondservant and brother. Did we learn his name? It's Jude. Okay. You can mark Jude, too. That's the author. Two, those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Okay, not talking about the author anymore. Now we're talking about the recipients. What does it say about the recipients? Just shout it out, Barb. Those who are called. Okay, who, what else do we learn about the recipients? Somebody? Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You're going to mark all of those in the same way, differently than the author. Different, mark the author one way and the recipients another. If you're doing this sometime and you don't have different colors, you could always just take your regular pencil and you could underline author and circle recipients or something. Just something to make them different. Verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Anything in there telling us anything about the author or recipients? It's not really any information about them, but there is a pronoun you. Who's that you referring to? The recipient. So go ahead and mark that because we just want to make sure we, um, when we come back to go through it, we've um, given ourselves that visual of where to look for information about the author and recipients. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. Okay, anything about the author in that verse? I, that's right, while I was making every effort. We also have that word our, and the plural, pro, that's a plural pronoun, a little grammar, speak, okay? Some of us don't get concerned about that, some of us zone out. Plural just means more than one, pronoun means it takes the place of a noun, which is a naming word. And I only know that because I've gone through grammar three times, besides going to school myself. It took four passes for me to get plural pronouns. Okay, and so plural pronoun. Okay, this is kind of an aside, but if you're studying on your own, you're thinking, huh, do I mark that or not? Well, okay, it, I know it includes the author, but who does it include the recipient or not? Well, in this case, the author is just one person. It's not like Paul and Timothy. If it was Paul and Timothy and you see an hour, then you kind of have to look at the context and figure out, well, does that hour just refer to the group of authors? Or does it talk about the author including himself with the recipients? But because we only have one author and he uses a word that means more than one, when he uses hour, it looks like he's talking about both the recipients and the author. So you can handle it how you want. I put both colors on it because I'm just indecisive. I like to cover my bases. All right, so we have the I marked for the author. You can mark the hour to include the author. What do we see about the recipients in that first line of verse 3? Beloved. He calls them beloved. Mark that with your color for the recipients. Anything else about the recipients in that first line? You. That's right. You is referring to the recipients. Be sure you mark that. Okay. Um, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. What do we learn about the author? I. Okay, we want to mark I because we're going to want to come back and write down what we've learned about the author from this verse. 
and the recipients, we see two uses again of the word you. Those you'd both mark for the recipients. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this verse. Anything about the author or recipients? Not, not directly. We have the hour. You can mark that for both. You know, it indicates both of them again. Verse 5, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. What do we learn about the author here? What, what reference to the author do we see? I. Okay, what reference to the recipients? You. We got you twice, don't we? All right, now we're going to enter into, and I'll just give you... I'll, I'll steal a little bit of the joy of discovery. Um, the next several verses, we're not going to see references to the author and recipients. So you can just try to get, because you didn't get to do that read-through to read it beforehand, just try to get a feel for what it is the author's talking about. Why is he writing? Verse 6, um, so this is continuing, and that means he's continuing the thought he had in verse 5 of, of the things that he wanted to remind them of. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That word just as, that's a comparison. So that kind of helps you when you're reading and understanding and working through the flow of text. He's using this account of Sodom and Gomorrah as a comparison with what he said before to help us understand it better. Um, also, this is just the kind of thing I like to do when I'm reading. I'm, this is where you can be thankful you have your reading plan. If you've read through Genesis, you've probably, Sodom and Gomorrah might ring a bell. So in your margin, you might just want to make a note that, hmm, I'm going to want to look up an Old Testament cross-reference here. I'm going to want to understand more about that. I don't want to go yet. I want to stay in my passage right now. But before I'm done studying, I'm going to want to go and get more information about that. Verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, that word but is a contrast word. He's going to contrast what, what just came before with something different. Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But, so now he's changing again. He's going to contrast Michael with these men. And we're going to want to know who these men are. We saw that up in verse 8 and verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. This is just extra credit, but anybody heard those words in the Bible before? Yeah, if you've been doing your Old Testament reading, Cain and Balaam and Korah might ring a faint little bell somewhere. So again, you might want to make a little note in your margin that I'm going to want to check out some Old Testament cross-references there to understand more about what that might be talking about. 
Then verse 12, these are the men who are hidden in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Did you catch the reference to the recipients there? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. He departed from talking about the recipients to tell us all about these men, these other men, but now he's talking about where these men are intersecting with the recipients, isn't he? Okay. Um, all right, so verse 12, you should have marked your and you, um, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame-like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Okay, verses 12 and 13, other than you and your, we don't see anything about the author or recipients, but we, we talked about this in passing. We talked about literal language. What's going on here? What, what do we call it? What's that? Imagery. It's imagery, figures of speech, a metaphor, different ways to describe that. So again, we're not gonna, we don't want to get distracted and start going into the details too quickly, but we just notice that. We're reading, we're just seeing what's obvious. Obviously, these men are not literally wild waves of the sea. There's some imagery going on there. And so as I get moved past my big picture and start working through verse by verse, I'm going to want to think more about how does a wild wave of the sea help me understand something about these people being described. Verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Hmm, any repeated words in those verses? You see a pattern? That's what you want to do. You want to read and just see, wow, I, I'm noticing something being said over and over again here. That might be important. Verse 16, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Verse 17, but contrast, okay, he has been talking about these ungodly men. Verse 17, but you, beloved, who's that? Those are our recipients, that's right. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, so did you get you and beloved and our and you all marked there? Verse 18, they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. But... You, beloved. We've seen that phrase a few times, haven't we? You, beloved. Both would be about the recipients. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Those are yourselves and you're still referring to our recipients. Mark that in the same way. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves, again talking about the recipients, Keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. Now, first couple time reading through, you might not pick up on this, but I want to point it out to you because in your own study, it might just be helpful to, to notice that in verse um, 22, you see some verbs, have, save, have, verse 22 and 23. And there's not a subject right there next to it. And maybe you remember from fourth grade or seventh grade or something like that. Well, there are two possibilities here. One is that verse 22, it it starts a new sentence. And have mercy. If I say to Kate, go to the store, who's the subject of that sentence? Kate. Kate does the going, right? I I don't have to say, Kate, go to the store, or you go to the store, because it's a command. That's grammar. That's grammar. We understand in English that when we're giving a command, we don't have to give the subject. So when you see those, those words in verse 22, have mercy. Who's supposed to have mercy? You, right? You have mercy. And so that would be referring to the recipients. And so typically we put that in parentheses, you in parentheses, because it's understood in English. You save others in verse 23. And then snatching, other, snatching them out of the fire, and on some, you have mercy with fear. So the reason why I wanted to point that out is that on, in your homework, when you're going back and, and looking at all that you learn about the recipients, you're going to want to take note of the fact that they're actually the subject there. They're the ones receiving that instruction. Oh, around the you, like if you write in a you um, before have mercy, you know, and you have mercy. Oh, so you write. I I wrote you in and put it in parentheses because it's the understood subject of that sentence. The other possibility, and see, I don't know Greek. I don't. And I just decided to bother Scott Maxwell one less time than I already did this week. So I didn't ask him. But the other possibility is that sometimes in English, I know that they divide things into shorter sentences than what they were originally in the Greek. And so if, if verse 22 was originally part of um, verse 20, it actually could be that that you up in verse 20 is the subject. Because verse 20, you, the, the verb that goes with the you at the beginning of verse 20 is actually keep. In um, 21, but you keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the main thought of that sentence. So if that period at the end of 21 is added in the English, then that you in verse 20 would actually be the subject for have mercy and save and have mercy. So either way, the subject is you, right? So it doesn't matter for our purposes right here. Okay. Um, all right. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's your recipient again. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You see that you, again, we're talking about our recipient. 
verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, that's both your author and your recipient, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Okay. So now we've got a nice, colorful sheet. And so you know, if I read your homework, you know I like colors, right? (laughs) Because I like writing with colors. And so now I'm already happier because it's got color on it. But the color is going to help us um, hone in on what specifically did Jude tell us about himself? What has the author told us about himself? So what we're going to do next is we're going to, over on the left margin, the reason why you have lots of space here is that we're going to make a list over on the left. And we're going to make a list of everything that we saw in the book of Jude about the author. So mine, I just wrote author. You see I've got it you know, all written up. And underneath that, we're going to write what we learned about the author. And then I like to write after whatever I write, I put the verse number. So then when I want to go back and say, now, why did I think that was true about him? I can go back and see where it actually came out of the passage. So the first thing in verse 1 that we learned about the author is we learned his name. So we're going to write Jude on our list. Next to that, you write a little 1. So go ahead and do that now. Hopefully we won't go so fast that you can't keep up. And you don't have to. You can write this in color if you can read it. If it's difficult to read, feel free to use whatever writing implement works for you. You could do this on separate paper. If you write big, feel free to use separate paper. That's fine, too. Second thing in verse 1. What's the next thing we learned about our author, Jude? He's a bond servant of Jesus, right? So go ahead and write that down. And then when you're done writing that, the third thing we see is that he's a brother of James. So write that in your list. Those are all in verse 1. And if you decided that after you've really soaked yourself in this text, you want to know more about this author, you would want to go and find out what other Judes are mentioned in the New Testament, and you'd want to find a Jude who had a brother named James. Right? You've learned a little bit about the author that's going to help you figure out there's actually several Judes in Scripture, and so that would help you narrow down which Jude this one might be. Okay. Uh, Then I look at my sheet, and the next place I see my color for author is down in verse 2. What do you, and I'm sorry, verse 3. What do you learn about the author in verse 3? And just when when I'm trying to put something in a list, we're trying to make it fit in the list. So we're kind of trying to summarize, but we're also trying to use the words out of the verse as much as we can to keep us from interpreting too quickly. If we're using words words right out of the verse. We're just observing what the scripture says. So who wants to make a stab at what it is you see about the author in verse three? That, okay, that he wanted to write about salvation? Well, he, he believes he has common salvation with... Okay. All right, has a common salvation with the recipients. Right. Very good. That would be a great thing to put in your list next for the author. So go ahead and write that down. <coughs> has a common salvation with the recipients. 
verse 3. Janie. He didn't have, he have affection for his yeah, you, you see, you really see that in what he said in verse two, don't you? Well, the word oh, and he calls them beloved. Yeah, thank you. So at this point, I probably in in my list would probably say calls recipients beloved, just because I like I I, I want to I, I don't want to jump to to interpretation too quickly, but for sure. You don't call someone beloved if you don't have an affection for them. So that's not a, a, a wrong. It's not a wrong interpretation to draw by any means. Okay, so we've seen that he has a common salvation with them, that he loves them. What else have we learned about the author? Okay, he's been making an effort to write to them. Jenna. Yes. Yes, and what and what? Yeah, and that's really important. I'm really glad that you said that. She said we see a lot of the author's intent in this verse. He tells us why he was writing, and and that's part of our understanding of language. Is we all, we want to understand what the author intended, what he meant when he wrote. And it's really nice when he comes right out and says it. Some books, the author comes right out and says it very clearly. Other ones, yeah, you have to dig a little deeper to, to, to discern that. So um, in your list, we, we have things now, things like the author is Jude. He's a bondservant of Jesus. He's the brother of James. Um, that he has a common salvation with the recipients. That he loved the recipients. That he was making every effort to write the recipients. Um, and that his purpose, uh, that he felt the need to write to them, to appeal that they contend for the faith, you can be summarizing these things, how it fits in your column. Anything else you want to add about the author that we see there in verse 3? Marilyn pointed out that um, one of the things we learned about the author is he was making every effort to write to them. What was he making every effort to write to them about? Their common salvation. That's what he was making every effort to write to them about. But is that what he actually wrote to them about? No. There's something else that apparently he felt more urgency to write about. Ingrid. Okay, he's appealing that they contend earnestly for the faith. So we've got a lot about our author in just that three first verses, especially this verse three. And then I'm going to, you know, when you find a verse that has that much in it and you've just seen a lot about the author's purpose, you might not want to jump to the next thing you've marked too quickly. Because if we keep reading, you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Verse 4 begins with the word for. And this is the kind of for that you could replace with because and not change the meaning. And we use the word because or for, that's really giving us the answer why. It answers the question why. So if we've got him giving us information about why he felt this need to appeal to them to contend for the faith, that's going to help us understand more about his purpose in writing. 
So we read verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we know that it's really important for us to understand the author's intent. We know that he felt the need to appeal to them to contend for the faith. And now we know why. It's because these ungodly persons have crept in unnoticed. So that might be all part of what you want to include in that information about the author because we want to understand why he wrote this. Um, Verse 4, you could um, also include something about that pronoun our, that his master and Lord is Jesus Christ. That probably is something that's pretty self-evident if somebody wrote a book of the Bible, but um, you can certainly add that to your list. Um, Verse 5, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. And then he reminds them of these things we read in verses 5 and 6 and 7. What do we learn about the author there? He is a reminder. He wants to remind them of something. Is there? Now we certainly could write out everything he wanted to remind them of. Is there any way we could summarize the things that he reminded them about? We have, first of all, him reminding them that the Lord, after saving people out of Egypt, destroyed those who didn't believe. Then we have him reminding them about angels who abandon their proper abode, that he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he compares that with Sodom and Gomorrah and the example of judgment that they are. Is there any way we could summarize all of that? We wouldn't have to. If you're doing this on your own and you don't see any common thread there, um, it would be certainly fine to write, reminds them of the Lord's destruction of unbelievers who came out of Egypt. Um, I summarized it this way, that he reminds them of examples of sin and judgment. Um, At least two of these are obviously Old Testament examples. The angels who didn't keep their own domain. You might need to do more study to know if that's an Old Testament example or not. But at least we know they are examples of sin and judgment. So he reminds the recipients of examples of sin and judgment. All right, moving on. Um, The next place I see any color of my author is in verse 17. But there he's just referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, not really any new information about him. Verse 21. Same thing, just our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so we've got a list. We've got, we've put together some things that we've learned about the author. So now, this is the step that I'm prone to skip because I like tasks and I like coloring and I like making lists, but I don't like thinking all that much sometimes. (laughs) But it's just so helpful to remind yourself, I need to think about what I'm learning here. I need to go back 
and say, okay, what have I learned about the author? Okay, his name is Jude. There's actually a reason why the book is called Jude. Okay, now I know why. He's a bondservant of Jesus. He's a brother of James. And my list isn't quite like the list we came up together, so if I skip something that we've said... This is just, just goes to show you everybody's list is going to look a little different. And that's okay. We're just trying to write, seeking to write down the things in the scripture. Um, but we saw that he loves the brethren, that he has a common salvation with them, that he was making every effort to write to them about their common salvation, and that he felt the need to appeal to them to contend for the faith because the ungodly have crept in. He reminds them of examples of sin and judgment. And then it's good just to stop and think, is there anything else that we have learned about the author just from having read the book so far? Things that you know about him. You know, you might want to say something like, well, clearly he's familiar with the Old Testament. He uses a lot of Old Testament illustrations or allusions. You might, verse 17, um, he says something interesting where he says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't include himself with the apostles there. Now that would take more, you'd want to do more study and see, well, are there other apostles in scripture who talk about the apostles without calling themselves an apostle? But that might be helpful if you're trying to figure out which Jude he is, looking at other references to Jude. He might not be an apostle. He doesn't call himself an apostle here. Um, and so so that's that's actually all the study we're gonna do here. We're going to um, try to understand why what we've done what we've done and, and why it's helpful. But we've looked at, we've learned some things about our author, we've looked at the passage, and we've learned some we've seen some other things that we might might want to dig into. But the most important thing is that we've got a a good start on understanding why he wrote this. Um, we even saw how important it was. We saw a sense of urgency. You know, he didn't say, Hey, I retired last month and I finally got around to writing you this letter I've been planning to write to you. Now, he was actually making every effort to write to them about something really important, their common salvation. And when he was trying to do this other thing over here that was really important, he felt the necessity to write to them to contend for the faith. And so even though all we've done is we've prayed and we've read and we've thought and we've marked and we've listened... Um, we still have gotten a, a good beginning understanding of why Jude wrote this letter. Um, and so when we continue studying, we're going to get a better understanding of why he said everything else. And we're going to have a better grasp of understanding why he gives the warnings that he gives and why he gives the instructions that he gives. Um, why he gives these particular encouragements. They're all part of the reason that he's writing this letter. We come back and we hold all the other things we learn up next to his purpose and, and ask, how does this help him fulfill his purpose in writing? Now, hopefully, 
you already have more questions. You know, maybe you can't wait to go back and mark and make a list about these ungodly and try to understand more about them. Or maybe you want to work through and study this passage sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph and just really get your mind around his flow of thought, how he, how he addresses this problem that he's writing about. Or maybe you really want to go take one of these complex sentences apart and diagram it and make sure you understand how every part of the sentence is explaining the main uh, subject and verb of the sentence. Maybe you're ready to read it again and identify some repeated words or concepts that the author uses to help communicate his meaning. Um, You could dig deeper into understanding what's meant by this faith that they're urged to contend for. You might be ready to, when you're done, when you've studied and gotten all you can out of the text itself, you might be eager to go look up those Old Testament allusions or to dig into some of those metaphors or to do some word studies so you can better understand what the recipients would have understood by them. Or maybe you want to mark and list everything it says about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and, and then think through how are those truths helpful to the author in fulfilling his purpose in writing this letter. So I really hope that you are excited, but I also recognize that this might seem really different to you because a lot of times when we read the word, you know, we're kind of looking for that verse to grab hold of, that kind of that vitamin, that little pet pill, something to to get me through the day. And and we might do that without really even paying attention to the context. You know, I, I find myself doing that. Oh, that's a great verse. Ooh, that next one, that's all about judgment. But I like this first verse. It's really encouraging. Um, you, you might have even feel like that right now, looking at Jude, thinking, you know, looking at the purpose of Jude feels a little anticlimactic. I might have been, you know, a lot more boosted just to read Jude 1. Hey, I'm, I'm called and beloved and, and kept, right? That's pretty awesome. But a verse like Jude 1 becomes even more encouraging when we hold it up to the context that that it's in and we start to think about why the author would want to remind his recipients of these realities. Was there something about what was going on that would require them to be strengthened in their understanding of who they were in Christ? So why study the Bible this way? Well, we do this because we want to know our God. We want to know him and worship him. And if we want to know him, then we need to remember that he is the ultimate author of this letter. He's the one who was concerned that these believers be warned about these ungodly people who had crept in unnoticed. He's the one who didn't want to be unnoticed anymore. He's the one who wanted his people to contend for the faith and he wanted them to know how to do that and he's the one who knew exactly what kind of encouragement and reassurance they would need when they received this urgent appeal and that God is our God he's our God and he cares about his church he is a shepherd to his people he is telling us what he knows that we need Now, remember the grocery list? Suppose I send my kids to the grocery store with a list of all the things we need to make our meals this week. 
Now, what if they read it and they only ask themselves, what sounds good to me? (laughs) What am I hungry for? And they look down the list and they say, huh, apples. I like apples. Apples are good. Or they, oh, wait a minute, ice cream. Ice cream's really good. Why should I bother to get anything else on the list? I found what I like. Who needs veggies, right? Well, that's ridiculous, right? We wouldn't have very interesting meals that week. Um, But we need to be careful not to do that with God's word. We don't want to just come and look for what we're hungry for, what we think we need. We want to come looking for what it is that God wants to feed us. He knows what we need. So study and be diligent because you can trust your Heavenly Father to feed you what you need from his word. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that there was something about this that was helpful. I I do pray that you would use it to encourage every single woman to see how much you love her, that you have given her your word, You've revealed yourself in your word to us and that we would just be eager to know you for who you are, to know what it is you want us to know about you, to heed the warnings that you give us, to be encouraged by the reminders of what you've done for us in the gospel and what you have promised to do for us in all eternity. Oh, Father, help us to be eager and earnest because of what you've done for us in the gospel to be those who contend for the faith, who remember the warnings you've given us from scripture, who keep ourselves in the love of God and build one another up in the faith and look for your mercy and rescue those who are in danger, who have mercy on those who are in danger of believing the lies of the ungodly who might creep in unnoticed. God, you are a great God. Please make us into your worshipers more and more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so if we don't need to stack up all the chairs, we can leave out enough chairs for our discussion groups, or if we want to take our discussion groups outside again, we can do that. But I think the uh, set people will probably be in at 9 again. So before you start discussion group, if we, I don't know that we need to push all the tables up, but just that back row of tables, push it up against the middle row and um, stack up the chairs we don't need and, and put them over there so they have room to work.